Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. I had uh, planned to start our new series on Ezra and Nehemiah this week, but I think we're going to put off one more week. And instead we're going to look at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Let us give attention to God's Word this morning. And he, that is Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, while he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, you may be seated. Let me pray for our time this morning. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word that you've given to us. Uh, God, you know that we need it. You know that we need to constantly be drawn back to you and to be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would speak uh, words of comfort where we need to be comforted, but even words of rebuke where we need to be rebuked. Lord, just speak to us as your people and let us hear and we pray that we might have the faith to respond in the appropriate way to bring honor and glory to your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, this morning uh, I, I want to uh, look at the topic of prayer in the midst of delay. And as we look at Luke 18, and, uh, you know, the reality is, is that life for anyone on this earth can, can be uh, difficult, but especially for a true follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but by being a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, we live on this earth uh, under the system of this world. You know, the way the world thinks, the way the world functions, under Satan's rule. But, but, is it, but we're also, at the same time, while we live in this earth and the way that the earth and the, the governments uh, so often of this world think contrary to God, we, as God's people, are called to live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. And so for the believer, there's tension in our lives. And we ought to feel that tension. Unfortunately, I think sometimes believers seek to alleviate that tension. And so that's where we oftentimes will find ourselves sort of giving in to compromise so as not to feel that tension. Now, we don't need to create that tension. Believe me, brothers and sisters, we don't have to do that. All we have to do is to follow what God says and obey his commands and we will be there. I don't know if you've ever thought about how much relentless tension this causes in a person's life. To live in the, the now of the kingdom of God while living in the not yet. In other words, Christ hasn't come back yet. And yet he has brought his kingdom when he came the first time. 
and how that causes us to live different than the world. You know, outwardly we're exposed to the rules and the laws of, of Satan's dominion, but inwardly we serve a king, a different king, a master. Inwardly the perspective is different. Our priorities are different because we are God's people. What does uh, Paul say to the church in Ephesus? But that we are seated with God in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ. Those things are present realities. Oftentimes we think, oh yes, that's what's going to happen when we get to heaven. But no, he's talking about that's who we are right now as Christians. That's why Paul says to the church at Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. But you know, our temptation can be to, to get caught up in the things that are below. But he tells us that we are to think about the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You know, kids, we are, are called to live out the radical ethics of the kingdom of God. We are to called to live very differently. And so, kids, that's why your parents will teach you and train you and instruct you in what the Bible says in things like how to love your brothers and sisters, right? How to work. You know, just different things like that. And you'll look at that, and sometimes kids, you'll think, wow, my parents are expecting me to do things that are so different than that of my friends. And that's because God calls us to live in the different ethic. If you would, turn to Titus chapter 2. We're going to sort of be all over. We're going to come back to Luke, but look at a couple different passages. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes to Titus, and he says, here as he talks about how we as Christians uh, are to live, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. In other words, that's how we are to live now, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, living self-controlled lives, upright, godly lives, now in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, who are not just doing good works, but they are zealous, excited, to do those good works. And so we live, so as we live as true followers of Jesus Christ, there, that tension that we will feel will be great. Now, the reason why I say all of this is because that's the context of this parable that we're going to look at this morning. That if you look back into chapter 17, maybe beginning around verse 20 or so, uh, and through the end of the chapter 17, that you see that Christ is talking about his return and how he will come back. And then it's within that context of Christ having come, ascended into heaven, he's waiting to come back, and our life now here on this earth, that this parable 
addresses that, that time frame. And so you see Jesus saying to his disciples in uh, Luke 17, 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. In other words, what, he, what he's saying is, instead of Christ returning as we desire, life will simply go on as normal. As a matter of fact, look at verses 26 and 27 of chapter 17. He says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was just simply business as normal, right? Business as usual. And he says it's going to be the, like that today. And, and people will care less about Jesus. Some people will mock Jesus. Um, but we need to understand that that is part of what is going to happen. In 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 3 and 4, uh, Peter talks about this. He's, he says, uh, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come... In the last days, kids scoffers are people that like make fun of things. People who are scoffing about Jesus, making fun of Jesus, putting that down, maybe making fun of you because you believe in Jesus. But in, in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, you guys keep talking about how Jesus is going to come back. The church has been talking about how Jesus is going to come back for thousands of years. And nothing's happened. And Peter says, that's the way it's going to be. And people will scoff at that. So, you know, in our lives in which we live, we see people that are apathetic towards Jesus. People that are mocking him, making fun of him. People who are even persecuting the church because of the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, we are all called to live like citizens of the kingdom of God in a world that hates Christ. Well, in the midst of that, there could be a temptation of God's people to just give up. You know, the life just goes on. So we end up working a job, raising a family, getting ready for retirement, all those things, which are all good things. Um, but that's exactly what was characteristic of Noah's day. They just thought that things were going to sort of go on as normal. So they sort of just fit into the routine of life. And even as Christians, we can be tempted to do that. And the temptation that we can have is uh, that we think that when it comes to uh, life, that there's really not more that we could do. And that we might even think that real prayer is really irrelevant. Um, it's not going to change things. If we're honest, the real temptation that every Christian faces is to believe that our prayers will not make a difference. Now, um, you know, I know that we as Christians pray. I know that we pray, but sometimes we can fall into sort of the temptation to pray mechanically. We can, you know, we might pray the Lord's Prayer. We might pray before a meal. We might pray with our kids at night. We might pray during family worship. We might give quickie prayers on the way to the office, you know, just as, as we're in traffic or whatever. We may have lists that we ask the Lord to pray. Or if we're honest, maybe many of us, maybe many Christians, really don't do anything that you would really call real prayer. And unfortunately, uh, preachers are 
no exception to that. A survey was done that uh, said that the average length of time that a preacher prays every day is less than three minutes. Three minutes. Too often we doubt whether God has power to meet our real needs as we're living this life in a time of waiting for Christ's return. Especially in this time of delay where life just seems to go on without any kind of dramatic answers. So, so how are we supposed to live in this time? And why am I talking about prayer uh, in regards to all this? Well, that's the question that Jesus raises and answers, really, in this parable found in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And Jesus just goes ahead and gives us the bottom line. As you know, a parable is not a story to be nitpicked apart and you know, trying to apply every aspect of that parable to our life situation. Usually there's, there's one lesson that's being taught. There's a few parables where Jesus will give the details and he'll explain those out. But for the most part, there's just usually one lesson that you're supposed to learn. And Jesus gives us that in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. You see, Christians, that's what God's will is for our lives during this time of us waiting for Christ's return, that we be a people that pray. And, and not only pray, but not lose heart in our prayers. We don't have to guess what King Jesus wants us to do. He wants his disciples to continue praying until he comes back and not give up. And so I want us to look at the parable this morning very briefly, and then I want us to spend an ex extended amount of time just sort of thinking about the lesson and how this applies to our lives. So the, the parable is very simple. There's just two characters. There's the widow and there's the judge. The judge, he, uh, he admits he doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear people. He's just sort of his own man. He does whatever he wants. We see that in verse 4. Uh, if he were a Jew, he would openly be defined the primary qualification of a judge because a judge had to be one who feared God. Because a, a judge who doesn't fear God doesn't recognize that there are universal ethics outside of their own interests. You know, I know that sounds weird in our day and time because we think that whatever we think is what's true and what's right. You know, we don't realize that there is a God and he has a universal ethic. He has standards. He has laws that he has given us. He goes, this is the way that I made everything. And these are the laws that I want you to follow because this is the pattern by which I made all of creation. And this judge doesn't recognize that. He also doesn't really believe that he's going to stand before God one day. And so he feels relieved of any burden of having to bring justice within the court system. And so the parable is about this kind of ruthless man. You can just imagine what it would be like to have a judge like that. And then there's the widow. All right, she's, she's helpless. She's maybe bitter, maybe much like Naomi. If you remember Naomi in the book of Ruth, how she left with her family to go to Moab because there was no bread in Jerusalem. And, and then she returns, but when she returns, her husband has died. All of her sons have died. The only one with her is Ruth. And when Naomi gets back to Jerusalem, she says this in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, 
for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You see, in, in Hebrew culture, widows were the most defenseless of all. They had really no one to protect them, and so they were easily oppressed. They were easily taken advantage of. They oftentimes were the victims of, of legal suits, which is what we sort of get the sense from this parable that this widow, she was being taken to court and, you know, treated unfairly. And maybe she was like uh, the widows that was described later in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, where it talked about some of the widows who were victims of men who devour widows' houses. Maybe someone was seeking to take advantage of her in that way. We don't know. But of course, for her to get justice from an unjust judge, you know, probably the only way she could do that is if she would bribe the judge or she would threaten the judge, which probably neither one of those were an option for a widow. And so the only thing left to do was to plead, was to beg with this judge that he might give her justice. Um, and so she did. And, and actually, the language of the text here seems to suggest that she confronted the judge everywhere she went, not just in court. So, you know, when he's with his colleagues, she's begging for justice. When he's in the streets, she's begging for justice. When he's in the marketplace, when he's in his house, wherever he's at, she's right there begging him for justice. And even at that, her, her chances of justice were slim with such a godless, hardened, cynical man. But it's the only thing she could do. But then we see in verses 4 through 5 that while the judge remained unmoved for a long period of time, eventually she got justice, right? Uh, he was motivated to give her justice, I guess just because of, of her pleading. Now, let's look at this a little care more carefully and, and sort of see what's the lessons that we get from this. Well, Jesus tells us in verses 6 through 8, it says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, most often this passage is entitled something like the persistent widow, the the idea of being persistent, of, of, of nagging. You know, a lot of people think that what this is teaching is that we need to have relentless prayer. If we don't have relentless prayer, you know, that, that that's the virtue we have to attain. We have to keep frantically begging God that He might answer our prayers. But the problem with that is this, that if you look at Jesus' words that He gives here in verses 6 through 8, Jesus is not comparing God with the judge. He's actually contrasting God with the judge. He's saying if the judge will do this because she is persistent, how much more will your father answer your prayers? And so I want us to look just a little bit here at the nature of God. I mean, the judge was very unloving and he was evil, but God is loving and good and gracious and merciful and just. And what's more is he is infinitely all these things. So he is infinitely good. He is infinitely gracious. He is infinitely merciful. And in the parable, the woman was just an insignificant widow. Okay? That's how many people viewed widows in those days. But, but as a Christian, see how it describes us. He refers to us as God's elect. 
as God's chosen. Uh, we are created in His image. We are redeemed by His Son. So because of who God is, and because of who we are, there's no reason for us to frantically storm the gates of heaven or nag God for a response, thinking that we have to somehow wrestle an answer out of God. I mean, think back to uh, the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. One of my favorite stories, kids, of all times. If you don't know it, you need to ask your parents if they'll read it to you this afternoon. But they, uh, uh, Elijah was on Mount Carmel, and there were these uh, priests or these prophets of Baal, and they were sort of having this showdown, okay? And so they, they built an altar, and they put the sacrifice on it, but they weren't allowed to light the sacrifice. They had to pray to their God that the God would send down fire or something to light the sacrifice. And so, of course, Elijah's like, you guys go first. And so they do, and we read that the prophets of Baal, they cried out to Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But the Bible says there was no voice and no one answered. So, of course, then Elijah begins to mock them, right? And he says, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. Kids, do you know what that means? When it says he's relieving himself, what it means is maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he can't hear you because he's on the toilet, okay? Or, or maybe he's, he's on a journey or, you know, something else is going on. And so they started to cut themselves with swords and stuff to bleed just to show their God about how serious they were. Well, sometimes Christians interpret this parable in that way, and they think that we have to somehow do all these things to try to get God to, to answer us, that we must pray with such persistence that God has no choice but to answer us. But such a view of, is idolatrous because it imagines that God is something like that unjust God. And, and so that's why I appreciate uh, Sam Storm. He wrote, he wrote a book called Reaching God's Ear. As you can tell, it's a book about prayer. But anyway, he poses some really important questions, I think, for us to, to ask ourselves as we think about our own prayer life. Number one, do we repeat a request because we think that the quality of a prayer is dependent upon the quantity of words? In other words, do we just keep using words and trying to get better arguments when it comes to God because we think that's going to make it a more effective prayer? Uh, do we repeat a request because we think that God is ignorant and needs to be informed? Or if not ignorant, at least he's unconcerned and therefore needs to be aroused. You know, like he's not listening to our every need. Do we repeat our prayers because we believe that God is unwilling to answer and we must prevail upon him, somehow transforming a hard-hearted God into a compassionate and a loving God? Is that sometimes how we view God? Do we repeat a petition because we think that God will be swayed in this decision by our putting on a, a show of zeal and piety as if God cannot see through the thin veil of our hypocrisy? Those are great questions for us to consider as we think about our attitude towards prayer. Now, let's think about prayer. Does that mean then, are you saying, Pastor Rick, that we must never engage in pleading prayer? That we should never persist in prayer? That we should never uh, bring our requests to the Lord over and over and over? 
And, and the answer is not at all. We definitely should do that. You know, all I'm trying to speak to is the fact that we should not think of God, that we need to do that in somehow getting God to answer us. You see, the teaching of this parable is that we must continue in our prayers even when there seems to be no answer. That's the kind of persistence that we need to have in our prayers because God, unlike the unjust God, is a loving, good, and gracious God, and He wants to answer our prayers, brothers and sisters. And so we persevere, we, we persist in prayer, not because we have not yet gotten God's attention, but because we know He cares and He will hear us, knowing that God knows our needs even before we ask them, and He will answer us. Well, you know, through the centuries, many believers have struggled with the seeming silence of God when it comes to prayers. But here, Jesus says that God answers all pleas for justice, and he does so speedily or quickly in, in verses 7 and 8. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, we all know situations where people have been wronged and they have not gotten justice and so how could Jesus say that well I think the thing we have to remember is the context in which this parable is given and even the next sentence after what I just read in in verse 8 Jesus talks here again about when the son of man comes this is done in the context of a second coming and so Jesus makes it clear that speedily doesn't mean immediately that God will give us that justice right away when we consider God's timing, when we need to keep in mind Peter's words regarding God's promises, right? From 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Remember, with the Lord, one day is like a what? A thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. And he, so he goes on, he said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But what that does tell us is God's timetable is different than our timetable. And God will keep his promises, but maybe not on our timetable. And so the parable teaches the certainty of speedy action when Christ comes again. But I know that many Christians still struggle with God's silence when it comes to prayer. And, and so sometimes they're disheartened to persist in prayer. Well, you know, I think sometimes what we forget is even when we receive silence, God is working and he wants to answer the prayers of his people, right? Um, but sometimes God is silent because he's saying no, right? Sometimes maybe we are praying wrongly. Sometimes we pray for things that actually might be harmful for us. And so God's not going to answer those things. Um, or maybe there's a, re a request that we bring before the Lord, but he has a better answer that he wants to give to us. So he's not going to answer what we say, but instead he's, he's bringing about something different in our lives. The Apostle Paul did that when he, he prayed. Remember, he had the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, he was wrestling. He was persevering in prayer and saying, Lord, take this, this thorn from my flesh. And he prayed. And he was sustained in prayer. And he was passionate in prayer. And the Lord says, No. My grace is sufficient for you. And so sometimes the Lord tells us no. Sometimes God has something bigger and better that he's doing 
um, than what we even can imagine. Sometimes we ask for this small little thing out here, and God is doing this great masterful plan, and He's carrying this out uh, in a way that will answer this tiny little thing that we're praying for, but God wants to do so much more than what we're praying for. And so sometimes that silence is just God is at work in ways that we don't know. But there's another reason, and, and I want to sort of camp on this third reason why God is silent um, for a while, just to help us to sort of think through this. Sometimes God is silent because he wants us to be dependent upon him. He wants us to be dependent. Sometimes the silence of God is meant to instill that sense of dependence. In the case of the Apostle Paul, uh, he was left with his thorn so that he would lean more entirely upon the Lord and upon his grace. And, and, you know, so often we are prone to pray for independence, are we not? And if God answered our prayers that we prayed, you know, it would lead us to self-sufficiency, it would lead us to pride, and it would lead us to independence. And that's not what God is seeking in his children. He's not going to answer our prayers in a way that's going to lead us to walk in sin. And there could be no better way to cultivate a sense of dependence upon God than the need for persistent and determined prayer. Now, um, Skip Ryan, fellow PCA pastor, actually has some comments on this passage. And I want to share those with you this morning. He talked about some, maybe some, some reasons um, and some struggles that we have in our prayers that might help us to see that oftentimes as we pray, we're not seeking to be dependent upon the Lord. He said, first of all, we're not persistent enough. We're not persistent enough in our prayers. The woman is constantly, every opportunity she gets, pleading with the judge. Prayer is not something that's casual. It's something that's very intentional. Like I told the folks that came on Wednesday night, prayer is work. It's not something that, that, that's simple. It, it's the work of, of God's kingdom. Uh, and, uh, and God is uh, calling us to pray. And there oftentimes is little intensity in our seeking God in prayer. Too often, most of our prayer is very casual uh, when we come before the Lord. For most of us, prayer gets about as much attention in our lives as it does taking out the trash. Right? We do it, and we do it regularly. Um, we oftentimes don't look forward to it. And we definitely don't think much about it. And, uh, but, you know, we just sort of want to get it done, do it, check it off our list, and go on. And sometimes that's how we can address prayer. But Jesus tells us that we need persistence. Because the natural bent of our hearts and our minds is oftentimes away from the Lord rather than trusting Him. Left to ourselves, brothers and sisters, we will not pray. The natural bent of our heart is not to pray. We oftentimes... Uh, sort of approach life from the perspective of God, I got this. I, I can do this. Because we're bent on doing things our way. And so we lack the persistence of prayer. But the other thing that he talked about was not that we were also not helpless enough when it comes to our prayer. Our prayers are not helpless enough. Now, what is prayer? Well, prayer is speaking words, but it is also out of a specific attitude. And I would suggest to you that that attitude is one of helplessness. Now, for many of us, prayer is what we do when it's sort of the last resort, right? 
You know, we lose our job, we can't pay our bills, we don't know what to do, and so we pray. We have some major decision that comes up before us. I, I, I'm working this job, I get an opportunity to take this promotion. Do I do it or do I not? I don't know what to do, so I pray. You know, my loved ones has, has a terminal illness. There's nothing I can do, nothing the doctors can do. So what do I do? I pray. That's oftentimes how we pray. But prayer consists in simply telling God day by day the ways that we are helpless. Now think about that. The ways that we are helpless. And this is why I think that we are often find prayer so difficult and we find it so unsatisfying because we are not very helpless as Americans. As a matter of fact, we try to weed out helplessness from our lives, right? We try to get rid of it. Uh, when you look at your life and you see an area where you're weak and you're out of control, then what do you do? You start working on that area. You try to fix it up. You try to fix whatever is broken. You try to say, let's get this right. Let me get my life more organized. And we try to do everything we can to organize ourselves out of helplessness. And when we do that, guess what happens? Then we don't need God and we don't need prayer. And so, you know, prayer, though, is speaking to God at the deepest point of our need. And, and the Christian's goal is not to manage one's life so I don't have any needs. Prayer is living in the conscious recognition that I desperately need God even when I think I know what to do. I think it's interesting that David if you read through the Old Testament, would go to the Lord and ask his direction, even when David knew what to do. But he would inquire of the Lord just to make sure he was right. But I think, how often do we do that? If there's no place in your life that you desperately need God, then you cannot pray adequately. Because the places of desperate need, the places of weakness, the places of vulnerability, the places of hurt, the places of chaos, the places of failure in our lives, these are the places where in our helplessness we can cry out to God. And it's one of the marks that ought to distinguish the people of God from, from the world. That, that we dwell in our helplessness. That we don't run from our helplessness. We don't seek to organize it away. And so we are to be different. The ways that we handle our deepest need is what should make us different. So we ought not to resent the illness or, or to, to resent the tragedy or to be bitter over that failure. It's not that we want the illness. It's not that we want the tragedy in our lives. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we see that he, God uses even those things in our lives to cause us to be dependent upon Him because He loves us and He seeks to draw us closer to Himself. For those things are the sovereign prodding, proddings of a sovereign God who loves you so much that he would wound you deeply to cause you to be dependent upon him. And the third thing uh, the Skip Ryan sort of mentioned were that, that oftentimes our prayers are not big enough. Our prayers are often not big enough. They're too personal. They're too inward. And, and I'm not saying that God doesn't care about our needs, okay? But what I am saying is, is that our needs are not all that God cares about. And it's not all that we should care about either. What is on God's heart? Are my concerns on God's heart? And the answer is yes, they are. 
but in what context? And as you look at the context of this passage, you see it's the context of seeking the day of the Lord and Christ's return and the establishment of his kingdom. So if our prayers are to be big enough, then they have to be for the establishment of his kingdom here upon earth and not just for what I want for myself. And so our prayers are not big enough because they are not about the things that are on God's heart, about the things that God wants for my life and for my family and for my church and for my community and the church around the world. Because we oftentimes are praying what we want for those things rather than what God wants for those things. So why are the prayers of my heart focused on the things of God's heart? You know, as we live uh, on this earth in the already and the not yet, we've already experienced God's kingdom to some extent, but yet not fully. We're waiting for Christ to return and for Him to establish His kingdom fully. Um, Jesus closes with a question. Look at the end of verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Now, Jesus' question at the end that such faith will not be found on earth unless his disciples learn to always pray and not lose heart, as he said in verse 1. That's the sign that we have not lost heart, that we would be a praying people, that we would be persevering, we would be persistent in prayer, coming to our God, knowing that he is who he is. Jesus was saying that continual prayer until he comes is not only the evidence of faith, but that means it also is what builds up our faith as well. The God to whom we pray is not like the unjust God, but He is a God who loves us and who is gracious. And we are not like the widow, uh, but we are His chosen ones. Because of this, He delights to hear us and to answer our prayers. So, people of God, I want to encourage you this morning, as you leave this place, as you live your life, Spend much time on your knees in prayer to God. Many of the things that you're carrying, many of the weights that you have on your shoulders as you come this morning, you're under so much stress, you're under so much weight. How much of that have you taken to the Lord and laid at His feet? He says, cast your cares upon me, right? Because He cares for us. And yet we carry those. Let us lay those things at the foot of the Father who loves us so much and desires to answer those things. Please, if you would bow with me, and let's just meditate. Just spend a few moments, maybe in silent prayer to the Lord. Maybe there's things He's been pricking your heart that you need to pray to Him about. Maybe there's things you need to, sins you need to confess. Maybe there's things you want to thank Him for. Just spend a few moments in silent prayer before we continue on in our worship.
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that if while we wait upon this earth for the day when Jesus will come back, that you have not left us alone, but you have given us a, a direct line, a lifeline with you, that we could come before you, Lord, and to lift up our prayers and to lift up our needs to you. Uh, Lord, to pray for the coming of your kingdom. Lord, to pray for uh, you to be glorified here upon this earth, for your kingdom to be established and to grow. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are ever with your people and you love us. May we see that, God, in the privilege that you have given us to persevere in prayer and not to lose heart, not to grow weary um, with the many things that we encounter while we're waiting for your return. So please strengthen your church, God. This week, prompt us to get on our knees and to pray to you and to lift up the many burdens that we've been carrying. We pray in your name. Amen.